as I say, the physicists now are not as dogmatic as they used to be, but uh, they don't bother to try to really have a clear picture. So they can say, oh, but maybe it's many words, that's all, maybe this, maybe that, you see. And, and because they don't think it true, the students don't know. You see, I, I think I say in my book that there should be at least three things that should be said. One is that there is a problem with quantum mechanics, not clear what it means. That's the minimum, minimum that you should do. The second thing is non-locality, because that's a theorem, okay? It's not, I mean, it's not something which you can speculate about. And then explain Bo that Bohm is a solution. Now, of course, people will say, oh, we don't like Bohm. Okay, you don't like Bohm, fine, but what do you like? I mean, what, what, are you, what, is, what is the whole thing? Jean Bricmont is a Belgian theoretical physicist and professor emeritus at UC Louvain. Uh, in line with some of the things that we've been talking about on this channel, he's written two books, amongst many others, on making sense of quantum mechanics, exploring some of the base questions, foundational questions in quantum mechanics. Uh, he is a proponent of the Bohmian view, so we discuss that, some questions about philosophy, and some of his views around postmodernism. Uh, this is my conversation with Jean Brickmont. How did you become interested in the foundations interpretations of quantum mechanics? Oh, because even in the elementary courses, I didn't think what they told me made any sense. You see, they were saying that physics does not study the world, but have knowledge of it. And that's self-contradictory because, of course, if you have knowledge of the world, then you speak about the world. And certainly, we didn't study uh, the brain or uh, the sociology of science or anything like that, anything that could be called how to study how our, uh, our knowledge of the world. So that didn't make any sense, but I was in an environment where really nobody would explain anything to me. The, you know, what people were saying is that Bell had shown that hidden viable theories uh, were impossible, which is a frequent, as you know, a frequent misconception of what Bell really showed. But uh, that's what I heard, so I thought, I was a bit lost, you know, and I was even more lost in quantum in uh, particle physics because it was very formal. So I turned my I turned to statistical mechanics and I did my thesis there and then I worked on that and I, I was always interested in quantum mechanics as a hobby. I was in Rutgers and then I talked with Shelley Goldstein and other people, and then over the years I learned uh, Bohmian what is called Bohmian mechanics and what I call the Bohmian theory. And uh, that's how I wrote my book, uh, Making Sense of Quantum Mechanics, you see. Right. Do you think there's been any more clarity on the part of physics, on the part of physicists, uh, to move away from Copenhagen and towards more coherent view? And that's a sociological question, not a physics question. I think, okay, I just I will send you my paper in a, in a few hours when it's finished, but I... I uh, was at the conference last week in uh, Munich and uh, last year. So uh, I gave a talk explaining, I mean, at the end I said, well, I think it's a minority, it's a growing minority, of course all, all minorities tend to say that, but uh, I, uh, I uh, think it's true. But, uh, you know, physicists, I mean, someone, I was discussing with a friend and he said, physicists are all over the place now. There is no, or, I mean, not every, not people are not that 
gung-ho about the orthodoxy, you see. Again, when I was a student, there was a professor who said, Bohr has explained everything. He refused to explain how, but there, there was an extreme dogmatism, you see, extreme dogmatism. Bohr better shown that uh, uh, there are no, no hidden variables and, uh, you know, quantum mechanics is complete and Bohr explained everything. It was really very painful. And that was the generation, if you wish, that came after the founding fathers. Okay? So I'm talking about being a student in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, the generation there, they, they'd been really, you know, absolutely convinced in the 50s when they were students, 40s, that, you know, everything has been solved by the founding father. By that, they meant, of course, Bohr, Heisenberg, Pauli, uh, etc. Okay, von Neumann. And uh, Einstein and Schrödinger, their objections were misunderstood. I mean, Einstein, EPR, the EPR paper has never been understood by them. And it wasn't understood by Bohr. So it was quite, you know, and now I think the dogmatism is over. Not with these the people from that generation who are still alive. <laughs> I haven't changed their mind, but I, and some do. I mean, actually, one of my professors was reading my book and he was like over 90 years old. So, I mean, but. You see, but then the younger generation, they may like many worlds, or they may uh, uh, like the other, uh, spontaneous collapse, or they, or they may like, uh, I don't know, the relation uh, interpretation, or uh, maybe what truth does, and so on and so forth. And they don't think it true. And, and there's, uh, you have this impression now that it's almost like, you know, a postmodern world, that you have a myriad of interpretations. And then, and say, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, there are all these interpretations. Maybe Copenhagen needs to be fixed or maybe something like that. It's not it's not really shut up and calculate, but just that there is no clear idea about what to what to think. And I, I of course, in my book, I advocate boom and only boom. I mean, I, I don't think there is really any competing uh, idea about, uh, valid competing idea about uh, quantum mechanics. Right. I, I... At some point in the book, you quote someone who compares the reverence that people have for Bohr right now to Derrida, uh, like the the reverence that postmodernists often have for Derrida is kind of a reverence that physics students have for for Niels Bohr, uh, and that's problematic because it's not really following. That's, that's, yeah, that's Marabella. That's yes. Marabella. Yes, thank you. Marabella was saying that yeah, the, the, she was saying yeah, of course, but they never had this. Reference, reference for Bohr. I mean, uh, so, but it's true. It's true that Bohr. I mean, it's very interesting that if you, I gave a lecture in February in Belgium about, but in French about the Bohr-Einstein debate, and I try to show that really, if you look at the debate, Bohr in twenty-seven, in thirty-five, yeah, the Solvay Congress, in thirty-five with DPR paper, and in forty-nine when there was this, you know. Uh, Einstein philosopher scientist series of paper, you see that Bohr never, never understand the fact that what bothered Einstein in uh, quantum mechanics was that it is non-local. Because he thought that this non-locality is artificial. He didn't know about Bell, and Bell came, you know, like uh, many years after his death. So uh, he couldn't think even. I mean, in fact, he didn't like Bohm's theory or the Boyle's theory because it was non-local. That's what bothered him. But ordinary quantum mechanics was not local in ways that was never clear to Bohr. And if you take a strict instrumentalist viewpoint, 
which I'm not sure Bohr did. I'm not sure what Bohr really taught, but you know, it's sort of very difficult to figure it out. But there is uh, this, uh, you know, he doesn't he doesn't understand what Einstein means. And Bohr, no, no, does Bohr, by the way. So, an instru an instrumentalist standpoint, you mean just to focus on the fact of the measurement and to say that is that I think Bohr had the following view that we cannot talk meaningfully about the microscopic world. We cannot really talk about our interactions with the microscopic world, but you cannot describe the microscopic world as it is, the thing in itself to take the title of the podcast, uh, uh, as it is, uh, independently of our measuring devices. So it's not that he's instrumentalist in the sense that he would be happy about it, but he just thinks that that's what the lesson of quantum mechanics, he just can't, talk about the microscopic world. And you cannot say, for example, that particles, we don't know the position and the velocity of a particle at the same time. Many people make a big fuss out of it, but I don't understand why that would be surprising. I mean, why should we know everything? And, you know, and of course, if you have measuring, uh, you have to measure a microscopic object, then you will perturb it. What's unnatural about that? What is so surprising about Heisenberg uncertainty? But what he meant, and I think Heisenberg did not mean it like that, what he meant is that they are undetermination, not uncertainty, but undetermination, so that there is no position and velocity before you measure. And in that sense, you are, it's not that you choose to be an instrumentalist, you are forced to be because they, of the nature of quantum mechanics. That, that's how I understand Bohr. Right. Okay. So moving on to the EPR paper, uh, what's the right way to understand the EPR argument? Oh, I think that's very simple. I mean, it's simple, except <laughs> most, most people miss it, but it's very simple in the sense that what it shows is that, you know, EPR is what I call the EPR dilemma. I mean, of course, they didn't pose it as a dilemma, but uh, either, you know, the world is non-local or quantum mechanics is not complete. You must add hidden variable because it's very simple. You have this perfect correlation at a distance. So you measure something here and you can tell in advance, then you can tell what will be the result of a measurement over there. If there is no action at a distance, measuring here cannot possibly perturb the physical situation over there. And therefore, the property that you are going to measure must pre-exist to the measurement. It's as simple as that. I don't understand why people miss it. Of course, it wasn't maximally explain because Maudlin remarks that you don't need to have both position and momenta, you just choose one of the two or you just, just do position measurement and then you know the position on the other hand side. But if the position on the other side didn't exist before the measurement, as for example Bohr would think, then how comes that it exists after the measurement far away if there is no action at a distance? It's just as simple as that. But obviously people misunderstood it and it's, you know, the answer of Bohr to EPR was dissected very cleverly by Bell in his book. I mean, he, he takes the, you know, the passage and he says, what the, you know, what does it mean? And then he says, well, maybe what it means is that Bohr actually, you know, uh, concedes action at a distance, but not clearly. And in fact, because of relativity, and because of, if people had said that clearly back then, that would have been a revolution. And in fact, when Bell proved I mean, the step, the second step is Bell, Bell proves that this hidden variable that would save locality would make sense, don't exist. And if it did not exist, then it means the world is not local. That's a proof of non-locality. Most physicists don't put the two together. They don't understand EPR as a result of which they think, 
Bell is the Neuhiden-Weinberg theorem, and then people say, oh, but we knew that Hiden-Weinberg did not exist, and von Neumann proved it, and then it's a maximal confusion. You just have to put these two simple arguments together. Most physicists, even very clever ones, very clever ones, don't do that. Gelman, for example, or, uh, or uh, Hawking, you know, I mean, I don't want to give names, but uh, lots of them, Born did not understand EPR, and uh, God knows what, I mean, these geniuses did not understand these simple arguments, very strange. Okay, so then coming to Bohmian mechanics. Uh, so Bohmian mechanics, in your view, completes the picture. Yes, yeah, what I, I call it the rational completion of quantum mechanics. Because, you see, in the end of the day, if I say to a physicist, here is a, an electron here outside of your laboratory, and it has such and such wave function, I give you the exact wave function, the spin, everything. What does it mean? What does it mean? It means that if I take this electron, bring it into a laboratory, and measure and do some so-called measurements with it, then I get such and such result with such and such probabilities. That's what it means. Okay, but if uh, somebody in the an astronomer say this planet will be at that place in six months, okay, in the sky, it doesn't mean that if I look at the it's important about the meaning. It doesn't mean that the, if I look at the planet with the telescope, then I will see it at such a place in six months. That's true also with additional hypotheses, namely that the, the sky is clear, that my eyes function, the telescope works as advertised, etc. But it doesn't mean that I will see it. It means that the planet will be there. And if you don't know what it means to say the planet will be there, then we don't know English or you know French or whatever. So uh, it's that's that's what the the meaning. The problem is that my problem with quantum mechanics, I've written many times that. The problem is not the reduction of the wave packet, but it's the meaning. What does the wave function mean outside of laboratories? If it doesn't mean anything outside of laboratories, then we have given up the goal of physics. You may say we are forced to, don't have anything better to do, and that's what more or less what Bohr thought. But it seems to me, first of all, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a disaster, okay? Uh, <clears throat> why do physicists celebrate the end of physics as if it was a great, you know, a major advance, and it would mean we can't speak about the world, period. We just speak about what happens in this uh, little operation in the laboratory. But then why do we build laboratories? We go to government and say, we I need a billion dollars to build the laboratory. And uh, then I say, oh, because I'm going to discover the laws of nature and uh, the ultimate laws of nature, etc. And then in private, you say, no, no, there are no laws of nature. We're just doing a little experiment to amuse ourselves. But, uh, you know, and then we, you know, of course, it will go outside or the philosophy seminar and the government say, what do you mean? You're just amusing yourself, I mean, you know. And then there's an ethical problem there. It seemed to me that, of course, you know, if bone didn't exist, if the brain bone didn't exist, then I don't know what I would think. But it seems to me that it gives the simplest possible completion of quantum mechanics and in the most vexing sense for the people who have claimed that it's impossible, because it says that matter moves. I mean, as my friend Detlev used to say, I mean, it means that, you know, particles actually move, you see? They have a, they have a, a uh, let me close this. Um, so the, the particle actually move, and uh, for example, in the double slit experiment, the particle goes through one slit, the wave goes through both slits, 
and because if both states are open, and then of course that wave influences, guides the motion of the particle in a different way than it would if there was only one state open. What could be more natural? And you can do that with the delayed choice experiment, you can do it with all experiments. You just have a very simple explanation in terms of matter in motion, uh, matter guided by, by, by a wave. And the wave function now has a physical meaning outside of laboratory, like the electromagnetic wave. It's weird because it's defined on multidimensional space, but nevertheless, it just, you know, guides the motion of particles. So what could be more simple? I mean, it's just shocking that you say, no, no, particles actually do have position and they have position at all times and they have trajectories, therefore have velocity at all times. Totally contrary to the dogma. But if you try to measure the velocity, so-called measure the velocity, then of course you have to set up an experiment and then what you are going to, you can show that what you are going to measure is not the real velocity, but something which coincides with the prediction of quantum mechanics. To explain it concretely, take a particle in the ground state in a box. Then of course, that's a wave function which is real, which according to Bohm's guiding equation means that the particle is at rest. So its velocity, we know it, is zero. But if you want to measure it, how do you do? You can't just look like if you were God and look at the particle somewhere, you know, where the particle is. So you have to remove the walls of the, of the box. And then by doing that, the particle starts moving and it moves in certain ways so that if you measure the distance travel after a certain time and divide by the time that has elapsed, then of course you get a velocity and that velocity is, is random depending on the initial position of the particle and is distributed according to the uh, absolute value square of the Fourier transform of the wave function, of the initial wave function. So it's in agreement with quantum mechanics and do the calculation, it's in my book and it's not an original and it just follows from Bohm's equation. So that's a very simple example. You can understand why a particle can have a position and a velocity at all times. Yet when, when you measure the velocity, you do actually an experiment, you interact with the particle. And, that's, and, and then of course you get a certain statistical result. But the point is that every interaction Every, sorry, every so-called measurement, except measurement of position, is an interaction with the particle, and the interaction with this particle is the same thing for spin, the same thing for energy, etc. Whenever you quote, measure, and uh, quotation mark measure, uh, and quotation mark, you, you are not measuring any property of the particle, you are just interacting with the particle, and the result of those interactions is statistically described by the Bono. Right. Right, and there's no threat to determinism. Yes, but it's deterministic in a funny way for many reasons. First of all, if it's deterministic, you might think that if you, for example, if you do a measurement of spin in a Stern-Gerlach apparatus, so you take a particle here with a given wave function, given position of the particle, then uh, the particle will go, will be, will have its spin. I mean, the result of the experiment is determined. Of course, the result of the experiment in the end is a position of a particle because we don't see the spin. You see whether it goes up or down in the direction of the field, of the gradient of the field. But then you can see that in certain idealized experiment, ideal situation, you, you can have a particle and there can be a symmetric wave function. And then there is another line that the particle cannot cross and then the particle, if it starts above that line, will go up. And therefore, you will say its spin is up. 
But if you reverse the orientation of the gradient of the field, it will again go up, and therefore you're going to say now it's going to a spin down, okay? So the problem is uh, that the value of the spin does not pre-exist to the measurement. Again, it's an example where you don't measure, it's contextuality of measurement, you don't measure the uh, some intrinsic property of the particle, even though everything is deterministic. But in order to know what the result will be, you have to tell how you orient your measuring device. So the details of the measuring device matter in order to get the result. So those properties are not real properties of the particle, even though the theory is deterministic. And then of course, there's something even more interesting is this hypothesis of quantum equilibrium. If you assume quantum equilibrium, then you cannot go, I'll explain in a minute what that means. But if you assume that, then you cannot predict or control things beyond the usual formalism, so that the uncertainty, so-called uncertainty relation, which are just statistical relation about results of measurement, still hold, etc., etc. You see, so uh, there is nothing. I mean, and quantum equilibrium simply is uh, saying that the if you take many many particles, then their distribution at the beginning of an experiment, if many many particles all having the same wave function, then at the beginning of an experiment, they will be distributed according to Born's rule, and that propagates with time, so that if you have Born rules at time zero, then of course, uh, when at a later time, at the end of the experiment, you will again get Born's rule. So Born's rule, it's called equivariance, it propagates with time. Then you can say, well, but why do I have them at time zero? Well, you have them at time zero because you prepare it with things which are also of the universe, but of course, assuming some sort of equilibrium in the beginning, I mean, also in the beginning of the experiment, or I don't like to speak of the beginning of the universe, but let's say the beginning of the your sort of baby uh, toy universe, then uh, you're going to, um, this is sort of a natural assumption. In a, if you want to explain the of entropy, you have to assume that the world started in an unequilibrium situation. Because otherwise entropy would not increase. Equilibrium would be, we wouldn't be here if the room was in equilibrium, there would be a gas or something and, and you would be gas too and there would be no communication, nothing. It's only because we are out of equilibrium. The out of equilibrium is by definition an unprobable situation. And then you have to assume that there is even more out of equilibrium. No, you're right. Boolean mechanics does seem like the clearest view. Uh, and it does seem like the most complete picture that eliminates the most ambiguities. But I don't know any other, give me another. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry because it's, once you understand it, it's so natural that it's difficult to think of any other because then you just say, oh gee, after all quantum mechanics is just a mechanics, it's just another mechanics. It's just, like, it's just classical mechanics with different trajectories, but there's nothing metaphysically new, uh, no question that you cannot answer. There's nothing. Well, the thing which is metaphysically new is non-locality, but non-locality, could be taken as a defect, but of course, because of Bell now, it's a quality because it shows that it has a property that the world has, not just quantum formalism. So it seems to me, and then you explain, now you explain also the, the, the measurements, what the measurements are not measurements. So you, you actually vindicate what Bohr was saying that, you know, you, can't, you don't measure properties, you interact with the system. But of course, he thought it would be true for everything. And then of course, there would be no meaning to the wave function outside of laboratory. Now you have given a meaning, but you have not fallen into the trap 
of assigning values like spin energy, momentum, etc., to particles, which you know from the Noahidan variable terms of the, the good ones, those of uh, Bell and Cocken and Specker, that uh, I mean, there are theorems that show that if you assume that quantum systems have properties like spin, for example, in every possible direction or something like that, then you can run well, plus some assumptions that I won't go into, which are very natural, then you can derive a contradiction, which is somewhat similar to Bell's proof of non-locality, and you can actually prove non-locality using that. But that's, you know, that's, uh, that shows <coughs> that uh, uh, Bohm is very natural because it just does not assign these properties which are uh, forbidden by the Noyden variable theorem. So that's a good thing. And uh, and then you have the quantum equilibrium that explains why you can't go beyond quantum ordinary quantum mechanics. So in a sense, it's a, it, I mean, Bohm, you can say Bohm tells the ordinary physicists, don't worry, okay, everything is fine. Just do your work as before, work with the wave function, the operator and everything, just don't bother. But it makes sense. It all makes sense because of Bohm. Okay, you don't. Have, if you want to study GRW uh, spontaneous collapse, then you have to modify quantum mechanics, and you have still problem with the wave function. I mean, you have millions of problems, or you have to, if you think in many words, and you have this incredible ontology. There are zillions of copies of of both you and me since we started the interview. I mean, it just you know there are so many strange things, and you're just no, just the mechanics. But it <laughs> and it's ordinary quantum mechanics, but but it makes sense, and you don't have entire libraries of mystical books and bad philosophy and God knows what. Yeah, it you pointed out in the book where all the things that need to be taken into account if you take up the other interpretations, like the adjusting parameters on GRW and, and coherence and all these metaphysical assumptions that sneak in that don't really need to be accounted for. In, in... No, no. In Bohm, you don't have to do anything. And and that's what this, that's why you find it so natural that it seems to me that, of course, people say, I don't want to be bothered with that, and I use it only quantum mechanics. And you can tell, yes, 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 just do. But if some student comes and say, what does it mean? I don't understand. And what is this blah, blah, blah about uh, consciousness and uh, measurement and so on and so forth? Then you just tell him, well, Bohm is so, not as a, when I was a student, was <laughs> Bohm has answered everything. And now you can tell Bohm has answered everything. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's necessary to make that uh, background philosophical distinction between idealism and realism uh, before proceeding? I know you point that out in the book, but... Um... Yeah, yeah. That's just because I don't think idealism makes sense. I mean, that's, that's, a, bit, that's a bit different. I, the problem is I, I don't understand what it means to be a physicist, to be a scientist, and not to be a realist. I, of course... You can discuss about reality of laws and whether time flows, and there are subtle, you know, philosophical scientific questions. But obviously, if you study physics, you want to study the world, and then you assume that there is a world and it has properties, and you want to know these properties. I mean, I just uh, biology. I mean, but I don't think there are many idealists in biology or in chemistry. I mean, just the, the idealism sneaks in in physics because of quantum mechanics, and then also maybe, maybe because people are bothered by the you know, the sort of abstract, the fact, what does force mean? And, you know, does the Hamiltonian guide, guide the particle? And people have been bothered by this question ever since, ever since Newton. And then they try to find uh, idealistic so solutions saying, oh, no, 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 it's not in the world. It's all, all in our heads, it's all, all in our head. 
I don't think it makes sense because if it's in our head, then why do you bother with experiments and so on? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, so but idealism, even though it doesn't make sense, I mean, I think Diderot was saying that this is the the uh, the most uh, uh, the most foolish philosophy, the most difficult to combat. Right, it, it, that is true. Like even in say biology or cognitive science, where you would think that these things would sneak in more. Um, people don't really take an idealist viewpoint. They take a mechanistic viewpoint. Like you want to understand some qualia and, and come up with a mechanism that's perfectly natural and that assumes a perfectly natural world. That's fine. But but I don't know why in, in quantum mechanics specifically, people tend to go that route sometimes. Oh, because of the whole of measurements. I mean, if measurements are central, uh, observations are central, observer is central to the physical theory, then it has an obvious path towards idealism because what is a measurement? You could say it's, a measure, it's just a measuring device, just a physical measuring device. But then you have the problem that if you follow Schrodinger's equation for the whole system, then you get into the superposition and you don't know what that means. You see, you get the psi catalyze, uh, the wave function of the catalyze plus the wave function of the cat dead. And that's uh, sort of... Then you say, then people start scratching their head and say, "What does that mean? what does that mean?" But the, as I point out, I mean, even the wave function of the cat alive or the wave function of the cat dead, even separately, I don't know what sense they what meaning they have. And so that's that's my main problem. The problem is the meaning of quantum mechanics, not the problem of uh, of uh, you know just the, the the problem of the measurement. I mean. The problem is that there is an, the centrality of measurement uh, is unsatisfactory for any physical theory. Yeah, but I mean, do, do you think there's almost like these two realms of discussion? Like one is legitimate discussion in physics, mathematics, philosophy that's sort of genuinely dealing with the problems and there might be disagreement, but it's still trying to understand the problem. And then there's this other set that wants to read a lot into quantum mechanics that isn't really there. Like trying to find a pathway to consciousness or all these things. Uh, they, they, they're both might be wrong in, in, in an ideal sense, but I feel like they're different in, in approach. I mean, it seems to me that, you see, once you accept the centrality of measurement and observations, where do you stop? I mean, Victor was, of course, saying ultimately it, the problem is in consciousness. I mean, he didn't say that all the time, but he did suggest that. And because all the people are on the mystical side even more, you know, even more, uh, go even more into that. You have quantum healing, you have uh, all kinds of uh, mixing between uh, oriental philosophies and uh, and uh, quantum mechanics and all that, which I discuss in my book in part. So there is this, you know, but I think the basic, I mean, I think if you can't blame the, the, the non-physicists for abusing quantum mechanics when you see all the things that the physicists have been saying. And that's that's what I think is a disaster. I, I find it, you know, I, 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 I go back to my student days. I mean, that's a very long time ago, but I still find it frustrating, you see? And when I, of course, I was teaching quantum mechanics, but then I was asking the students when I was in university, saying, do you understand something to the to the whole business. And then of course they was, oh, I want to pass the exam, I want to know how to compute the probability of the spin in that direction, if it is in that direction to start. I mean, they just wanted to pass, to shut up and calculate. They didn't want to worry about these things. I and mean, not all of them, but 
I guess it's a very natural reaction. I would uh, understand that reaction completely, but uh, but I found that very, very, very disappointing from the physics community that they don't seem to care about the meaning of their most fundamental theory. It seems to me that that is a very, very irrational attitude. And I found it, it seems to me that if physicists are good for something, they should be uh, guardians of rationality and not, uh, you know, and not, uh, I'm sorry. So I think they should uh, be guardians of rationality and, uh, and they are not. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. The responsibility should, I mean, if you don't tell students what it means, then you can't really blame them for seeking answers elsewhere, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, in general, I found we, I have a chapter in my book about the exploitation of quantum mechanics by non scientists, but I mean, uh, when you see what people have been saying, um, it's it's it is it is it is really not you can't blame the non scientists for what the other philosophers for what have been saying by uh, by then saying about quantum mechanics given what has been said by scientists I think that's as simple as that and I think the students can be forgiven certainly forgiven for being confused about the whole thing because nothing clear is being told and I say you see the as I say the physicists now are not as dogmatic as they used to be. But uh, they don't bother to try to really have a clear picture. So they can say, oh, but maybe it's many words, that's all, I mean, maybe it is, maybe that, you see. And, and because they don't think it true, the students don't know. You see, I, I think I say in my book that there should be at least three things that should be said. One is that there is a problem with quantum mechanics, not clear what it means. That's the minimum, minimum that you should do. The second thing is non-locality. Because that's a theorem, okay? It's not, I mean, it's not something which you can speculate about. And then explain Bo that Bohm is a solution. Now, of course, people will say, oh, we don't like Bohm. Okay, you don't like Bohm, fine, but what do you like? I mean, what, what, are you, what, is, what is the whole thing? Okay, I mean, it's like, it's like uh, on Facebook. I mean, it's just like many words. I mean, I don't like many words, but, you know, it seems to me that people, yeah, that's, these are the three steps which I think an honest teacher should, uh, should, uh, Anyway, like is a subjective judgment that doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, I think. Yeah. But anyway, I don't know if the situation will improve. I, I'm not very optimistic because I, I don't think, I don't think. You see, there is always the problem that people need to make careers. There is zero reward for even asking those questions. Very bright people who have been working in foundation of quantum mechanics, like Watt Streif, can't find a job. And uh, I mean, uh, not only him, but others. And I find that a pity. You see, there's not even a 1% of, of jobs which are attributed to these kind of things. And they have to find jobs in philosophy or maybe in mathematics department, physics department. It's very, very difficult to find a job, um, you know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how many people actually work in mathematics departments who are uh, working on. Uh, I mean, Detlef was in mathematics. His students that I know are in mathematics. Uh, uh, Shelley is in mathematics. Shelley Goldstein is in mathematics. Uh, um, Maudlin is in philosophy. Uh, 
physics but it's strange because then they, of course it's also very funny because it's oh we don't care we only worry worry about applications and so, so and then they start discussing the early universe okay what's the application of the early universe okay I don't know <laughs> or the, uh, the, the, the whether the universe expands and contracts and all these things. I mean, what's what's the application of that? No, you, you bring this up, but it's very true. People who dismiss the philosophical questions the most end up asking them uh, casually without discipline. Well, they ask questions which are, if not philosophical, I mean, they have to, I mean, I, for example, I don't agree, for example, that uh, Bohmian mechanics is philosophy. I think Bohm wrote a completely physics paper, and Bell wrote physics paper, and the papers by uh, uh, Goldstein, Duren, Zengi were physics paper, etc. I mean, I think this is complete physics paper. What I might call philosophy is, ah, but what is the status of the wave function? Is it a law? Or uh, and what's the status of uh, quantum equilibrium? Is that a law? Is that, a, you know, or, uh, what, is this, what is the nature of laws? Do you take a human view on laws, which I don't, but or, uh, you know, more the approach of modeling, which I do. I mean, you see, these, these, this is, then then I would say I call that philosophy. I don't think you need to do the philosophy uh, to, I, in my book, there are certain chapters on philosophy, which I've added because it's part of the discussion, but you could take them out and just leave everything with the equations and so on, and that would be a, uh, a physics book, in my opinion, but of course people will say, ah, that's philosophy, oh, that's philosophy. No, it's not philosophy, it's just understanding what you're talking about. What do you think the role of philosophy is then? Oops. Uh, well, you know, I mean, the, maybe <laughs> you won't like it, but Weinberg, of course, says that the, before the invention of the postal service, the whole of the nation state was to protect you from other nation states. I'm not sure that's true. But then he says the whole of philosophy is to protect yourself from other philosophies, from bad philosophies. And in a sense, I think it's partly true. In particular, protect yourself from idealistic philosophies, which are extremely common among philosophers, especially continental philosophers. But it seems to me that it's just also just clarifying concepts. You see, it all depends. If you call Bohm philosophy, then Bohm's are useful to clarify your concept. Now, it's, I don't know. I don't have a fixed definition of what philosophy means. It seems to me I've always been interested in philosophy. Right? I've read, read lots of philosophy, but uh, probably more than most physicists. But I wouldn't. I would not. You see, I wouldn't start with philosophy. I wouldn't. I start with physics, and then you reflect. I mean, the, you know, the book by Maudlin, the metaphysics within physics. I mean, you start with physics, and then you reflect upon that in order to think about the status of laws and things like that. The good philosophical, the good philosophy, at least since since Newton would, you know, I mean, at least, I'm not talking about ethics and things like that, but, you know, philosophy is, is, uh, is philosophy of nature, everything that's about ontology and metaphysics and so on, starts with physics. Okay, and then of course you can uh, start to re uh, think beyond what the physicists usually think about. Physicists usually don't think about the nature of space and time. They, you see, it's okay for me for physicists to take a naive attitude with respect to space, time, and these things, and just take the equations. And it would be okay for them to do the same thing in quantum mechanics if quantum mechanics made sense. But the usual thing does not make sense. And then of course you need to go beyond. But 
But if you take the Bohm theory, then of course it's a physics theory, it just completes ordinary quantum mechanics and that's it. But then, you know, you can go beyond and, and, and ask philosophical questions. Uh, but uh, Martin, for example, uh, as best as I can tell, constantly emphasizes philosophy, mathematics, and physics. But sometimes I kind of feel like it, it's kind of like the scientific method where we can have a nice description of what it is. But in practice, it's very difficult to draw lines. Um, and I'm not so sure there's really any point in drawing lines either, right? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you, uh, my friend Sokol had uh, once a, a diagram with a line, you see, going uh, from, uh, of course, he, he, where he puts all the, the different theories. So he takes, for example, on the one hand, on the one extreme, you can have atomic theory, for example, which is well established. But then you can have string theory, which is somewhere in between. I'm not even sure where it is nowadays, but uh, it's, not, it's not at the end of it's not at the end of the spectrum. And of course, at the, at the other hand, you would put pseudoscience, homeopathy, and all the religions on the other at the other end. Okay, with no things with no empirical support. But there is a continuum. I mean, it's not there is no demarcation as the positivists would have liked or Popper would have liked to have between science and pseudoscience. Especially because there's a lot of I think there's a lot of pseudoscience in what we call science. I mean, there's a sociological definition of science, which is what people do in the science department. But whether that fits any philosophical demarcation line, that I doubt. What is your view of the positivist and the demarcation problem? Well, again, it's a guide. You see, it's a guide. You don't have a fixed demarcation, but of course, if your theory, I mean, it's like like this big thing about Popper, whether it's falsifiable. Obviously, it has to be falsifiable in some way, but of course, what counts as a falsification is very complicated. You could say Newton theory has been falsified by the uh, periodium of Mercury in the 19th century. Nobody uh, gave up Newton's theory for that reason, okay? The question is whether, because there was a lot of empirical support, and, and so that's why I think Popper is totally misguided. And uh, the positivists, of course, they thought it was a question of meaning, but the meaning is you know, I certainly don't think the meaning are the means of verification. It's a meaning is a complicated notion, but I certainly don't think one can reduce it to, you know, to uh, the means of verification. So I don't have a demarcation line. As I say, it's a, there's a continuum between complete religion, mystical, pseudoscience, etc., and well-established science. Yeah. Okay. Uh, shifting gears a bit, uh, since you brought up SoCal, uh, can we talk about the fashionable nonsense book? Uh, yeah, I, yes. I really love this book. I love I read it as, as an undergraduate and, and just really loved it. Uh, do you mind just introducing it uh, for people listening? Well, my role in this book is, of course, secondary because it's all based, it all started with the hoax of Sokal, which has nothing to do with I mean, I knew about it and I read it, but so Alan Sokal submitted in 19, well, it was published in 1996, I think it was published in 1994, to um, uh, review a sort of, sort of popular, I mean, a sort of intellectual review, I would say, social text, a hoax, which was called um, The uh, Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. And he was trying to, to us, Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity, and he was mixing up all kinds of postmodern quotes and postmodern, you know, ideas, etc in order to supposedly make progress in physics. And there were lots of private jokes there, which I explained in a, in a later book. But there were, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, of course, it's interesting to say that it does start with, I mean, that's of course, 
he does start with quotes of Bohr and Heisenberg, but then of course he goes beyond that by saying, well, you know, uh, feminist uh, theories of science and uh, history of science, blah, 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 have shown that reality, uh, not only the, uh, is a, uh, you know, it's a social and linguistic construct at bottom, okay? So that was going straight in, in postmodern, which I think is nonsense, but that's what the idealism, if you wish, and that's what he, that's what he was saying, and he, he did, he, they did publish it. They did publish it because they thought they had the scientists on their side. I don't think they understood everything. They certainly did not understand all the jokes, you see. Um, I mean, of course, I found it hilarious because I think I understood all the jokes, but there were uh, lots of things which they couldn't possibly speak, and then he revealed, and then for some reason it made it to the front page of the New York Times, and because it was in the middle of the science wars, of course, he did not anticipate that at all, that he would make such noise. And then a few months later, it came to France. There was an article in Le Monde, and then uh, there was an attack mm. on him. And then I made, wrote a reply. And of course, I'd been a friend of him since he was a student, and I was an assistant professor in Princeton at that time. And then I replied to, you know, we, we had various discussion. And then because he had a, a collection of quotes, we wrote a book because I knew these quotes and I knew these authors. And then we wrote the book Fashionable Nonsense, which was, but we added also criticism of, of relativism, which I think is the more serious part of the book, although that's not the one that made the, the sales. The sales were about the, you know, the fact that we are making fun of these great thinkers by uh, quoting their things, which as far as I know are nonsense. I mean, in the second edition, we replied to critics, but there were very few, there were maybe a few sentences that could be fixed or could be explained, but most of the critics were attacking our motivation or, were, you know, what we, that we were outside of the field and so on and so forth, but they weren't really explaining what the quotes meant, except maybe one or two sentences. And, and, um, and so we, yeah, that was, uh, I think it was uh, an effort of clarification, but I don't think it had much effect. I don't think it changed very much the landscape. I don't know about the United States, but in France, I don't think it changed very much the landscape of uh, pseudo, I would say pseudo-social sciences. I mean, it's not social sciences as I understand them, but there are these, you know, part literary studies, part, uh, you know, gender feminist studies and so on and so forth, which where unfortunately such, and let's call it bullshit to be quick, proliferate. And of course, where relativism is a dogma. Right. So, I mean, there aren't really science wars today to the, to the effect there were back then, but do you, do you see any change from then to now? You mean there is no science war nowadays, you think? No, no, I think there are, but I think it just, it isn't as public and there aren't as many book, books written about ah, it. That's another thing. But uh, who won the wars? I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean, it's not clear. It seems to me that there is, uh, yeah, it, it seems to me that there is still a lot of this ideology. You know, even, even I remember when I was uh, giving lectures about the book in Italy, for example, even with physicists, I was very surprised. Even the physicists were sort of, had swallowed the sort of historicist and, uh, relativist view of science and they they thought well you know the people who make fun of them follow certain rules but of course the rules don't mean that we study nature because that's beyond our grasp we can't access 
the thing in itself. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, uh, you know, it's. I mean, of course, the you know, well, first of all, of course, I mean, and Morgan would agree with me. He knows better Khan than I do. But of course, the the distinction between the thing, the thing in itself, which we don't have, have access to, and then the thing. Uh, the phenomena that we have access to is already a step in the wrong direction, I think, because no clear distinction between the thing in itself and the phenomena. And then, of course, you have uh, Berkeley. I mean, it's a long tradition. I mean, I, I quote in my book the, the mathematician Euler, one of the greatest mathematicians who already makes fun of uh, idealism and did all made fun of that. I mean, it's an old story, and this relativism is what I call. Uh, in a nutshell, I call it idealism plus decolonization. Namely, it's idealism, but then, of course, you don't think the ideas belong to a sort of human mind or, a, or a God's mind. You think that it's all relative to culture, relative to gender, relative to you know modes of lives or whatever. And then every group of man has his own view of the world. I mean, everything everything is in our head. We project, but there is no he universal head. There is no universal human nature or human mind just all you know it, it has exploded into zillions i don't know of course i don't know how they know how many groups there are but into zillions of human groups that are that all have their view of the world okay and then you can't say that my view of the world is superior to your view of the world because that would be racist and that of course it's not even thinkable so modern science can't have any privileged view uh, as they say compared to i don't know super, the widest Meat and superstition, and that's that's that I think is still extremely prevalent. No, I agree. I agree. Um, do you think it's just a matter of time, or like, because I imagine that that if you have such a such a view that's so far off from reality, you don't believe in objective reality, those research programs won't lead anywhere. Like they'll they'll end up failing. So would the like would the internal failure of these approaches maybe make a change somewhere down the road? But it's difficult to know because you see, once you have this department, the department hire who they want, and of course, I don't expect a feminist studies, a women's studies department to hire somebody with very strong views on the biological differences between men and women, for example. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't have strong views, and that's not my field, but I mean, it's obvious that they are going to hire people who have this. Who share their just like in physics? I mean, if you you don't hire somebody who believes in astrology, okay? So they don't hire somebody who doesn't share their their belief system. But of course, then of course they produce papers which are uh, they do have a paradigm to use Kuhn's expression, and each of these departments have their own paradigms, and then it's very difficult to because if you attack from outside, then they say, "Oh, we are not part of the club, so we don't know what you are talking about." That's what the the reaction to Sokal and me. And then, of course, uh, but then, of course, uh, and inside, nothing changes because the paradigm reproduces itself. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. What's yeah, I mean, I like I understand the idea of shifting into a more practical critique. Like I, I did a podcast with um, James Robert Brown, who's a philosopher. Um, I, I, I keep going on about this on this podcast, but he he wrote a book on the science force and and, and all that. But he he brought up a point that was very salient, which which was that a lot of people have shifted criticism away from criticizing the fact of science, saying this is objective, this is objective, to criticizing the institutions themselves, to 
right? just making you know, a point about diversity I and listened to him. I listened to the few. I did. I listened to the. I didn't listen to the whole podcast. I was listening to uh, Craig Calendar uh, just before talking to you, but I listened to him and uh, the few minutes about uh, postmodernism. I thought it was very optimistic. I, I don't know if that's true, because I I remember a discussion. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was with Collins or Barnes and Blue, but there was a discussion once. We had several encounters after the book, for example, in Germany in Bielefeld. There was a a conference and uh, with sociologists and, uh, and people like uh, and people like us. And in one of the discussions, I said it would be useful if you were able to give criteria to distinguish between science and pseudoscience, you see. But of course, they would have to deal with the science, but maybe you can help with sociological criteria for that or something like that. But that they didn't want to do. They didn't have any interest in doing that. They, they were wanting to prove that the whole of science is a social construct. Back then, they may have changed their mind now, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there was obvious, I mean, we had discussion with Latour, uh, with this sort of the French analogues, that is more um, sort of, you know, uh, how can I say? I mean, it's, it's less serious. From the outside, it looks like serious than the British and analytical, I mean, were more in the analytical uh, tradition, okay? So he could say something and then contradict himself and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that these people just wanted to undermine the privilege of science. And I'm not even sure what the agenda was, because of course, you could have a hidden agenda, so to speak, or often not so hidden agenda to put forward to, you know, to promote religion, for example, or to promote your favorite superstition or something like that, or to promote political views. But it wasn't clear to me at all what they had, in, what they had uh, if they had any secret agenda, they were just, uh, I don't know. Right, yeah. I mean, like, I agree wholeheartedly with the idea of diversity in the institution. Just the more diversity you have will probably increase your chances of bringing more viewpoints to the table. But when you start... We just want to get to that central point of dismissing the objectivity of science is is problematic. Yeah, to put it mildly. Well, of course, what what um, you know the person you interviewed was saying that there is diversity. Yeah, that's true. But the, I think it's fair to say that many efforts have been made to hire or promote women in science. Okay, but in the natural science, I don't see any that. That makes any big difference. Maybe maybe they come up with different ideas, but of course, when you start talking about the social science, then you have the problem of um, you know of the feminist studies that may be ideological that have a certain ideology. Of course, uh, probably the other science, the other social science, have other problem of ideology. That's not. I'm not trying to defend them, but of course, the mere fact that you have it all depends what you mean by diversity. Do you have diversity of for example, gender, or you have diversity of ideas in the gender studies department. That's not so clear. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the optimistic hope is that having diversity of gender will lead to diversity of ideas. 